This is the Moon Tower Podcast with your host, Ian Hubbard. Well, hello, folks. This is Harry Doyle bringing to you another uh, great season of Cleveland Indians baseball coming to you from Cleveland Municipal Stadium. <laughs> that was a horrible impression. <laughs> oh, shit. I, had a, I worked on my Bob Euchre for about five minutes, and I thought I had it. Sounds like Bob went to Euchre more like. Oh, my God. I, we need to get a drum, a, like a small kid's drum set in here so we can do rim shots after your one-liners. It'd be too actually find find the uh, special effects. Let's, let's add some rim shots in oh, the final take on these. Okay. Because I feel like you need your own private band. <laughs> well, I'll get, I, I've been trying to get a band for my privates for years. Oh. That would cut off a little circulation. What are we talking about? We're talking about baseball, right? <laughs> All right. Well, it is baseball season now. Uh, I could care less, to be quite honest. I gave up watching baseball a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah, I actually I, I might go to a game though. I might go because I'm right. Across I might go to like the Mud Hens. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's perfectly understandable. Well, it, it's funny because I I can see about half of the stadium, half of half the field from my fire escape on the seventh floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Problem is the uh, billboard or the score main scoreboard that uh, has the back to the street blocks basically like half the field. Yeah. Like, like the interior half. So you can't really get Murray. You can't good see view. second base. You yeah. can barely see third base. But it's like, oh, yeah, we're you know, out watching the ball game. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, I think I might go. I might break down and finally go to one. I, I've only been to three three baseball games, all of which. No, it might be two. Two or three, uh, all of which were Rudge games. Okay. And I, I think they won all three times. One of the ones. Um, was when Ken, Ken Griffey Jr. was playing for him. Okay. In his later years, and he, I, th- I think it was a three-run home run. Uh, that he hit. And okay. Nuts. So that, that was actually that was actually kind of cool to see Griffey knock one out of the park. Oh, dude! Hell yeah, yeah. But I would pay money to see that. I all all three times I went for free. Okay. Two or three times it was like group trips and stuff like yeah. that, like school stuff. Like, oh, hey, good job this year. Let's go to a baseball game. All right, sweet. Uh, I'm kind of jealous of my older brother. He got to go to a Tigers game back when he was younger. I got to go to, like, a Mud Hens game, but that was, like, when the stadium just opened up down there for th- Fifth Third Field. Yeah. I was, like, yeah, literally right after they uh, opened up, it was, like, something they, they did in, I think it was in, like, sixth grade elementary school or something like that. Okay. So, yeah, we all went on a little field trip there. It's like, oh, hey, the new Fifth Earth Field's open, so let's go check out a game or whatever. I had the temptation when I was in, when I was in Boston to go to a Red Sox game, but I didn't I didn't want to devote four hours to, because, you know, I had stuff I wanted to do. Yeah, no, that's there. fair. I mean, hey, if you got the time for it, why not? But, like, hey, you know, there's always, you know, second trip, so. Well, I got to take the tour, which is good enough. Yeah, there you go. Because you got to see, like, the like their little museum that they have and, um, since it was the 15 minute tour, 20 minute tour that I took, um, we had, we went out to 
at the stadium where they have like the lawn uh, lawn seating, not mm. lawn seating, but uh, like dining seating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's like a day at the park, literally. But yeah, I thought about going, and I just I I didn't want to pull the trigger, and the tickets would have been way cheap because it was it was just an off an off game. That, okay. Yeah. So, but uh, it was cool uh, touring the stadium and seeing all like Babe Ruth's glove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, under glass. I mean, that was pretty sweet. But um, I can't help like because, like I said, I haven't paid attention to baseball. I think the last baseball game I watched front to back was Game Seven of the two thousand one World Series between the Diamondbacks and the Yankees. Okay. Because that was the last one. Because I remember Randy Johnson and Curt Schilling were on the Diamondbacks starting lineup, and it was the Yankees and. Yada yada, and it just went down literally the wire, and it was it ended up being a great, 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 great game, great series too. Uh, that was probably the last time I really cared about watching a baseball game because I remember growing up being a Braves fan, which was pain unto itself. Reds fans and Indians fans, like you can complain all you want, but they, oh my God, it was hard being a Braves fan because yeah. they won, they won the division all the time. It won like fifteen straight years winning the division by a land a, like a landslide, and then they would get to like the second round of the playoffs and then get busted out or go to the championship series and lose a crucial one or go to the World Series and lose the fucking Yankees. Yep. So I grew up hating, <laughs> I grew up hating the Yankees more than anything, but no, I <laughs> going back to the Bob Uecker, I, I was. I just picture if I went to a Mud Hens game, I would just be doing that the whole time. Yeah. Just <laughs> quoting that and quoting Major League, which is... I feel they need somebody to do that, though, honestly. I'm sure there's some jackass in the stands. There has to. There's got to there's gotta be Fucking knock him out and take his job. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll just quote it better than he does. Right? But, <laughs> uh, I'll probably do that just because... Just And once again, I've said it before... When the Indians were playing the Cubs, uh, two or three years ago in the World Series, they people wanted them to bring back and have like uh, Charlie Sheen and Tom Berenger and Wesley Snipes and all those guys line uh-huh. up in uniform as a starting lineup <laughs> for Game Seven. And yeah, they didn't do it, and like there was like that fan superstition, like oh that's the reason they lost. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, and I said no, that's that's one of the reasons probably, but as far as the bad juju. Uh, Charlie Sheen was all over Twitter, like posting stuff. He was in his Rick Vaughn uniform. Yeah, but he bought he brought with him um, Jobu. But that's not his. That I, I I think I think that's what did it. Okay. He can't have Jobu. Only Serrano can have Jobu. Dennis Haysbert, the fucking Allstate guy. Yeah. Is who played him in the movie? Like only Serrano can have Jobu. But Charlie Sheen brought it with him, and then the rest is history. You know, the Indians lose in the bottom of the tenth. So that's that's my that's my new sports conspiracy theory. But but no, I that is definitely still probably probably my favorite sports movie. Kind of cliche when it comes to that. It's either that or Rudy. Rudy. Like I mean, even if you hate football, you still gotta like Rudy. If you're if you're from the Midwest, in general, like that's kind of like part of the canon. It is, it is, because you get all teary. Like 
you get all teary eyed like at the end when he finally gets in and makes the sack and like I meant to dust. There's dust flying from this. It's in my cuticles. <laughs> but even if that movie is like, um, oh, um, they took the, apparently they took a lot of liberties with with that movie. Oh yeah. And writing it, which I don't care. <laughs> right. I, I, come on, like you really give me a like hard up about that. I mean, you all know that the movie has an agenda or whatever, what have you. Yeah, it does. Just let it do what it wants to do. Yeah. Hi, Matt. I love you guys. You guys are doing great. Thanks. I can't wait for you to see the progress on my landscape. Uh oh. Yeah. Just don't show us the progress on your manscape. Actually, I'd rather see the progress <laughs> on your manscape than your land. Actually, oh, if stop. Make it, make it an installation <laughs> project so you can do it side by side. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Maddie's back. He's he's doing some work, doing some work on his thing. Some some painting. Yep. But no, uh, yeah, Rudy for sure. There's, I mean, there's some other really really good sports movies, definitely. Like my cat at work, he was he was he was quoting uh, Happy Gilmore, which I know it's, it's like cliche now considering what Adam Sandler has and hasn't done, but this shit is still funny. That will always, right. always be funny. They can't not be funny. Like those movies in that time period were, you know, kind of like classics into themselves. Especially like the mid-90s. Yeah. Uh, I actually remember the first time I saw that. It was right after it came out on pay-per-view. And it was the summer of 96 or 7. Mm-hmm. And I only remember this because my brother Adam wanted to see that. And then return me, uh, my brother Cody and I. Uh, got to watch WWF SummerSlam. Okay. It was like the only like pay-per-view wrestling, wrestling uh, main event that we were able to get. And I remember that because Undertaker lost to Mankind in the Hell in a Cell because yeah, Paul Bear turned on him and smashed him with the urn yep. and then gave it to Mankind. Yep. But then the main event, I think it was for the Intercontinental Championship, Shawn Michaels beat Vader. Yep. In an in a epic, epic main event. Yeah, it was like that. There's some there's some stuff with Stone Cold. I think he was like one of the early matches, and I think, I think they had like a not a Royal Rumble, but like something like that. Yeah, like, like a, a a tune up for the crowd. But in return, my brother Adam uh, picked Happy Gilmore, and excuse me, man, I devoured that pizza. <laughs> Thank you, Vito's. Shout out to Vito's for their quality service. And ingredients. Yeah. Always fresh. Wink, wink. But in return, he got, uh, got to watch Halloween. We were set, my mom just let us watch it all together. I'm like, oh, this is funny. This is funny. But it's always been one that's like stuck with. And I, I started thinking, I'm like, and then there's like the like the old school like sports movies like Slapshot. You ever seen Slapshot? I have not. Uh... Three brothers playing, I think, semi-pro hockey. Okay. And they're they're all wearing my kind of glasses and like the tape up the middle, and it's like all they do is just beat the shit out of people. Like okay. they don't even play hockey, and they play, play <laughs> they play for like a rag ragtag kind of team. And it's kind of like bad bad news bears, but with uh, dudes playing hockey. And what was it North Dallas, Florida, Florida, 
North Dallas 40 with uh, Nick Nolte. Okay. I think yeah. it, was, it was like, I think they were playing as, no, they weren't playing as the Cowboys. They were like a team based off them. Another semi-pro team, like just guys like just playing just to play and dealing with their everyday working class lives and yep. in between, you know, that kind of. Face the challenge of everyday life. Well, no, it's it's actually yeah. a pretty. <laughs> it's solid. It's solid. I mean, it, it doesn't hold back. Which I think a lot of the like seventies like sports movies, the ones that started it, they do a very good job. And once again, going back to Major League, like that's why I love it. Is that it's you watch it now is kind of cheesy, but it's it's still like got a got its thing. Yeah, it's got its thing to it. Like. You relate to the characters, like it does a good job like building the team together. Everyone like it's got the definite comedic moments, but it all kind of flows together pretty well. Like there's not like that one part that kind of stands out above the rest. Like the whole movie I think kind of flows together pretty well. And it's a it's a good ensemble piece. I mean, it really is. It really is a, a decent ensemble piece. But then you watch it and you forget like how much the movie's dedicated to Jake Taylor, the catcher played by Tom Berenger, who's when, when, when he calls a shot at the end after he's got his like busted up Kirk Gibson legs. We just always call that call that going uh, doing a Taylor. It's like someone's like calling the shot literally, <laughs> trying to talk shit, and they cross that line. They're like, oh, you're doing a Taylor. But that's always a good one. My favorite quote from that is. Um, when Roger Dorn, the third baseman, approaches uh, Rick Vaughn, Charlie Sheen, when he's on the mound trying to about to face the Yankee slugger that uh, has like homered on him every single time he's been at bat against them, and it's after they fi- they find out that uh, Charlie Sheen slept with his wife. Oh. And he finds out he's gonna <laughs> kick his ass and all this shit. And he just comes up to him, he calls time. He's, he takes the ball. He's like chewing gum and chewing gum in his face. He's like, I "Got one thing to say to you, Vaughn. Strike this motherfucker out." <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love that part. And then they, he strikes him out and they end up winning the game. And he, like, they're in the celebration melee afterwards. And he punches him in the face. <laughs> <laughs> got me thinking about like other quotable movies. I mean, there's a million of them. Everyone. Oh yes. Well, I mean, that's kind of like the. That's one of the things that people, I think, kind of fall back on. Oh, yeah. Like, when they don't know how to carry on a conversation or whatnot. Not like right now, but (laughs) they kind of fall back on, like, music lyrics. Mm -hmm. You know, the things that they've memorized, movie quotes especially. Uh, I was thinking, like, you know, Blue Velvet. Yeah. Hence the post that I had up. (laughs) Had to get the high knee in the the PBR. (laughs) Hi, again. That, that shit! shit. Blue, blue ribbon. ribbon! Great. Yeah. So great. <laughs> uh, rest in peace, Jazz Hopper. Yeah, man. For sure. I mean, every, every, I mean, literally, like, anything he said, he says in that movie is just a quote unto itself. Oh, I do. Anything he says in general, honestly. That guy just has delivery for days. An odd sort of delivery. He, he had his own, he had his own thing going on. Oh, yeah. For sure. I think another one, I mean, obviously... You know, it's like Gary Busey, but not fucked up looking, you know? Well, <laughs> I mean, depending. Uh, I mean, it was kind of weird in that Mario movie. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. 
Try not to think about it. <laughs> what do you think? Well, like what? Goodfellas, Godfather, Big Lebowski, Paul Vision, like you all like there's so many, so many, so many, so many. Uh, I've been able, uh, I've been impressing, impressing a lady friend recently by being able to quote Nicholson's bit from Few Good Men. Mm-hmm. I used to have it down pat, and I haven't thought about it in a hot minute, so it's been a little, a little, a little. Uh, spacey, not Kevin Spacey. <laughs> not touching anyone. That, that's that's a story for another episode. Yeah. <laughs> Who's gonna do it? You, you, Lieutenant Weinberg. But yeah. the one, I, <laughs> the one I've been kind of practicing, and the one I want to give it a shot is uh, the diner scene in Heat between Pacino and De Niro. Yeah, it's a good one. Um. I've talked about it a million times. Like it's one of my favorite movies, and I I love the part of that film where they first meet because it's just them reacting off each other. Yep. You know, it's it's pretty subtle. There's not a, not a whole lot goes on. There's some facial movement. There's some eye movement, inflection of voice. That's really it. Like didn't, and it's so just plain. Where. They essentially figure out that they're the same person. Mm-hmm. So, here it goes. Seven years in Folsom. In the hole for three. McNeil before that. McNeil stuff, as they say. You looking to become a penologist? You looking to go back? You know, I chase down all sorts of crews. Guys looking to fuck up, get busted back. You must have chased down some dipshit crews. I worked all kinds. You see me doing through a slicker liquor store holdups with a once a loose tattoo on my chest? No, I do not. I'm never going back. Then don't take down scores. I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Try to stop guys like me. So you never wanted a regular type life? Fuck is that? Barbecues and ball games? Yeah. That regular type life, that your life? My life, no. My life's a disaster zone. I got a stepdaughter, so fucked up, because a real father's a large type asshole. We got a wife, passing each other on the downslope of a marriage, my third, because I spent all my time chasing guys like you around the block. That's my life. Guy told me one time, do not ever get attached to anything you cannot walk out on in 30 seconds flat if you spot the heat around the corner. Now, if you're around me and you gotta move when I move, I'd expect to keep a, a marriage. That's pretty vague. What are you, a monk? I have a woman. Yeah. What do you tell this woman? Tell her I'm a salesman. So you spot me coming around that corner. He's going to walk out on this woman, not say goodbye. That's the discipline. That's pretty vacant. Well, it's either that or we better go do something else, pal. I don't know how to do anything else. Neither do I. I don't much want to either. Neither do I. You know, I've, I have this recurring dream. I'm sitting there at this big banquet table with all the victims of all the murders I ever worked. 
they're looking at me and they got black eyeballs from eight ball hemorrhages. The neighbors spotted them, smelling them on the bed where they had been there for two weeks. And they're sitting there staring at me and nothing. No talk, no. And that's the dream. I have one where I'm drowning and I gotta wake myself up and start breathing or else I'll die in my sleep. Yeah, you know what that's about? Having enough time to do what you want. You're doing it now, not right now. See, we're sitting here like a regular couple fellas. You do what you do, I do what I gotta do. Now that we've been face to face, if I'm there, not gonna put you away, I won't like it. But I'll tell you, if it's between you and some poor bastard, his wife, you're gonna turn into a widow, brother, you are going down. There's a flip side of that coin. What if you do got me boxed in and I gotta put you down? So no matter what, you will not get in my way. We've been face to face, yeah. But I will not hesitate, not for a second. Maybe it's the way it'll be. Maybe we'll never see each other again. And that's it, that's the scene. Whew. Hope I didn't fuck that up too bad. No, you I've been, 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 been wanting to try it. I've been wanting to try it, see how it worked out. It done pretty good, Chief. Yeah, I've been working on my Pacino. I mean, obviously it's the, uh, it's the obvious Pacino, you know, everyone. Everyone knows the uh, post Scarface Pacino. The hard one, the hard one with him is is like the the young early Pacino, like up up until about God, up until about Dog Day Afternoon. Mm-hmm. It's the same with walking. When anyone tries to do a walking impression, you know they always they get the crazy. You know they 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 go too much for the you know the rhythm the rhythm. You know but, you know there's what like, he says doesn't like really have inflection know. too. What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but for me, the key to a good walk-in is when it gets down like this. And you just know when he furs his brow. Something's about that. You know? <laughs> like the real serious, like real heavy gruff. De Niro, that's... I mean, it's all in the face. Like, it's all in the cheekbones. Like for the obvious impression. You know, you do that. And you're, nah. But it's the eyes for me. I mean, the thing that he, I think he's, he did so well during his prime and when he still gets it right is the way his eyes move. You know, it's not really like the mouth or the inflection of the voice, it's his eyes. And then, of course, you know, you know, there's Jack, you know, I'm wearing sunglasses and it's three o'clock in the morning. (laughs) Still smiling. That's another one of the best clips I ever seen of any like paparazzi, like trying to get up next to an, uh, a celebrity or whatever, and the celebrity like lashing out at them but not doing anything. <laughs> right. Was uh, it was like the mid late nineties or whatever, early two thousands, and there was a clip of Nicholson coming out of a restaurant with his girlfriend or wife and their kid, and he's got sunglasses on and whatnot, and they're snapping and there's hundred photographers and snapping they're all clicking away he just walks out with a smile you know the million dollar smile that he has and the whole time he's like smiling like through his through his teeth he's like 
get those cameras out of my kid's face or I'll smash them against your fucking head. <laughs> He's like, okay, you've had your fun. All right. You know, you got your pictures. Okay. <laughs> He's just like the whole time. He's like, yep, yep. You having a good time? <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, fuck. I, now that I mentioned Jack, I'm not, I'm not going to do a few good men. If I can, if I can remember this one right. You ever seen or heard of the film The Last Detail? I haven't checked that one out. It's like out. one of the best unsung 70s movies. Okay. For fucking sure. Okay. Uh, Hal Ashby directed it. He did Harold Maude. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, okay. Last Detail, Shampoo, Being There, Bound for Glory, Coming Home. Yeah, like his streak in the 70s was pretty unparalleled. Pretty brown also, in the pants. He also did a but a bad called way. The Landlord. <laughs> and he was an editor for a long time. Actually won an Oscar for editing for, I think, In the Heat of the Night. Uh, the last detail, Nicholson plays a shoreman, Navy shoreman, who is assigned along with Otis Young. I, th- I, I want to say I've talked about this before on the show. Uh, they're assigned to escort... Um, Randy Quaid, a young Randy Quaid, mm-hmm. to military prison because he stole from a, like a, um, oh, like a Good Samaritan coffer or something. Like money they were trying to raise for charity. Yeah. He stole from that to buy his mom food or like pay her bills or something, something like that. And along the way, like they re- they find out like this, he's like 19 he hasn't been out. He hasn't done anything. He's never been laid. Never been drunk. He's just like this square, like chubby face kid. So they're gonna they're gonna take him out for the, a three day weekend before they take him to jail. Yeah. And you know they end up bonding and re- to a point and realizing that this kid's going to jail for a long time for a bullshit charge. He stole like less than fifty bucks from this coffer. Yeah. So the scene. It's one of the early ones when they're out on the town they stop in at a bar and there's no one else in the bar besides the bartender and uh, Otis Young is a black man so the the bartenders like kind of give him this, this eye like I can serve him he's like the law says I can serve him but I, I have to see ID on this on, on him blah 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 and then Nicholson like <laughs> The bartender reaches, bartender reaches underneath the underneath the bar to grab something, mm-hmm. and Nicholson reaches out his hand. And he's like, "Oh," he's like, "He's like, what do you what do you got on there?" He's, he makes a comment. He's like, "You don't you don't have anything under there except hard wood, buddy, or something like that." And the bartender's like, "What do you think? I, what makes you think I don't have anything more powerful?" And Nicholson goes, ho, ho, ho. This redneck's talking about firearms. Well, I happen to know you don't have anything except hard wood under there, my man, because I was in here one night when a certain sailor got laid at the side of his fucking head. Now, what do you think about that, redneck? And, he's like, <laughs> and the bartender, like, calls back. He's like, the law says the bullet. He tries to give a, a smarmy one-liner. And Nicholson looks at him. He's like, I'm going to kick your ass around the block till drill. What do you think about that? <laughs> Bartender leans in. He's like, "You try it, and I'll call the shore patrol." Nicholson whips out his gun. He's like, "I am the motherfucking shore patrol, motherfucker! Now I am the motherfucking shore patrol." <laughs> he's like, "Let's go." Like that's one of like, that's one of the 
best performances of his that never gets mentioned. It really doesn't. It's fucking prime time Nicholson. It's, a, it's great. Came out in 73. It's an absolutely terrific movie. But I can go on and on. But uh, we're going to get the sponsor in now for this episode. All right. Sounds good to me. going to take a short me. break until I keep stammering on about movie quotes that everyone obviously already probably knows. So. You like dags? You like dags? Back to back to ancient. Oh, fuck, it's a big one. Oh, you want my cat? Hey, that ain't the blue. So, <laughs> take a union break. Let your ears catch a rest. We'll be right back. Moon Tower Podcast.
Alright, we're back. Unit break is over. I think our bladders are cleared for now. Uh, there's still uh, something up there, but you know. That might just be your tapeworm. I call him Buddy. <laughs> my lonesome, my unlonely companion. A <laughs> uh, real quick shout out to uh, Maddie's friend who just received over 300 likes so he can egg his mom. Yeah. I, I hope she's ready for that. I don't know who this person is or I've never met them or their mother. I just, I just want to congratulate him on being able to achieve that. Yep. I hope it goes well, and I hope uh, she takes it well. I'm, I'm sure his mom is, yeah, you know, he, she, she, she birthed uh, a strapping young lad, yeah. so I imagine she can take it. Maybe that's what we can do is like do like news cycles, but about Facebook threads. <laughs> that that can be fun. Be be like called the digital neighborhood. Something cheesy like that. Something the kids would like. Better than the Call of Cthulhu. Actually. Or is it? If we could do that on this show. <laughs> summon. Summon. But no, uh, you were chit-chatting during the break about songs songs from movies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I can't, so I jotted down a quick list. That's another thing that even almost even more than movie quotes or something a character did or said or any sort of like certain character that you remember from fill in the blank movie. Oh yeah, I feel like the music is songs is like a character songs. in and of itself if you think about well, it. Well, and there's the the classical route where you know the Blue Danube mm -hmm. in two thousand one or um, or uh, Beethoven's music in Clockwork Orange, but mainly oh, like yeah. like like pop songs. Oh, once again, with Kubrick, I mean, Paint It Black at the end of Film All Jacket. Actually, the song is used in Film All Jacket altogether. And then you have, you know, Gimme Shelter. I, uh, what I find, like, Gimme Shelter, The End, Apocalypse Now, mm -hmm. From the Doors, Stuck in the Middle of You, from um, Reservoir Dogs. And then there's, you know, Singing in the Rain from Cocker Orange, Born to be Wild, Easy Rider, In Dreams or Blue Velvet from Blue Velvet. Uh, another one, I'm glad, I'm glad I thought of it, was uh, Call Me from Blondie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. American Gigolo. And then Matt came up with, uh, Man of, I totally forgot about Man of Constant Sorrow. Okay. From A Brother Where Art Thou. Yeah, and that was where, that's, yeah, that's a good one. They made, I, I think they made that that soundtrack for the movie. Mm -hmm. I believe it was made for the movie and not just taken from that, that bluegrass group. One of my favorites, honestly, one of my favorite, one of the, one of the greatest as far as known, and it, and it, it's, it's classical is, right, right of the Valkyries from Wagner. Oh yeah, yeah, Apocalypse yeah. Now, yep. During the helicopter invasion, oddly enough, if you think about the context of that and go back through American cinema, the history of it, and I found this out a while about the better part of a decade ago when I started getting into and learning about stuff like this and it was used in the climax of Birth of a Nation yeah yeah from 1916 and in D.W. Griffith's very uh, tumultuously praised and uh, condemned 
Birth of a Nation. The whole plot of it is essentially there's a slave slave insurrection, and not it's after the Civil War, so it's not a slave insurrection. It's uh, free black men are trying to stake their claim, and they're doing it by raping and pillaging the white community. Oh yeah, South. yeah, I remember you talking about this. Yeah. And, <laughs> white actors in blackface the kkk is the heroes are the heroes yeah and during the climax all 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 during that time (laughs) yeah which uh, i'll I'll get in that whole bit in a minute but the climax is this roving gang of of black men have basically seized control of i think it's i think it's richmond virginia because richmond was the capital of the Confederacy, I believe. I believe it was Richmond. Um, and these now free black men have, are, have basically ra- raised and ransacked the city. And the KKK has to come in and put them down. Oh. And they ride in to ride of the Valkyries. Oh. Which, as, <laughs> as a pure cinematic moment, it's quite epic it's for 1916 mm-hmm. you know the use of parallel editing sound editing etc etc is pretty amazing pretty amazing considering that cinema itself was pretty much 18 years old yep for the better part of it 20 years old if you want to split hairs but the content <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's been argued many, 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 many times whether or not D.W. Griffith was a racist or he, or if he actually meant to create a pro, pro-South, pro-KKK, you know, anti-Freeman kind of film. And it, I don't know. And the reason I don't know is because I, I never met the guy, but at the same time... Yeah. It's kind of, kind of like they asked the dude, so... Well, it, the thing is, if you side with the film, then, in essence, do you side with... Like, do you, do you side with the story? You know, it's the whole, can you separate the artist from the art kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Was D.W. Griffith racist? I don't know. I haven't, I haven't read up on him enough to make my own judgment call on it. Is the film racist? Yeah. It's kind of a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Now, is the film condemning it or condoning it? That's the question. Yeah. And I, you could say, yeah, it is condoning it because it's portraying the historically the evil as being the good guys. Yep. And I think, in essence, that's why it is a great film because you have to make that call for yourself. You have to be able to look at it with a subjective eye. Granted, we're 102 or three years removed from when that film came out, and that film was 50-odd years removed from the end of the Civil War. So you can understand why the sentiment was still there that maybe the South should have won. You know, that whole idea. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, at the same time, it was condoned by hardcore racists. Like, they loved it. I'm sure sure they did. (laughs) Woodrow Wilson used to have... uh, readily available screenings of that film in the White House and high praise of it. High praise of it. 
Dang. For those reasons. But now to look at it as a piece of art and as a statement in one way or another of the times and from the times, like being able to look at it a hundred years removed, you know, and, and, you know, ask that, ask that question, like how much has progressed, how much has progressed as far as the social and cultural norms of our society or our country and also of the portrayals of certain of what is good and bad in American cinema. You know, you have the KKK being the heroes. Yeah. Like who who would even think to have like nowadays like oh like immediately questionable. Immediately questionable. But like you know think of the culture back then. Well, and that's the thing. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing too is like and that is I I will say that is the easy excuse in support of it is that well you you gotta think about it in the terms of what they thought of how things were you know back then which is true yeah i mean it doesn't make it right but like at the time it's like in the culture it's like yeah a movie like that's gonna be made it's you know like i I said if you if you just break it down according to technique it's a brilliant film it is it's a damn good film as far if you look at it from the standpoint of technique what it initiated with technological and cinematic innovation like I said, the parallel editing, which is cutting, you have a scene, like the ending of the Godfather, the climax of the Godfather. You know, you, you have the the baptism, and then you have the hits going on at the same time, and it's cutting back and forth. Yeah. That's what it is, is the parallel editing is like the houses that are about to be ransacked by the KKK, and the, the black man trying to the insurrectors trying to gather the weapons and the militia to fight off the KK while at the same time they're fucking rolling in on horseback with the music blaring and the flag waving. You know, as as like as just a pure cinematic technique, it's amazing. Now the content <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. But I, I I guess what what I was venturing towards is I would say that it's a great film in that regard because like I said, you have to make that call yourself. And I think the best films some of the best films and some not so great films still at the end of them you are not given you're not you're not spoon fed or hand handed a certain certain uh finality like this is the way it is this yeah. is how you're supposed to feel about it and i will say this like films with an agenda don't use near as much like innovation as that one did yeah. <laughs> if you're going to look into that way. Well, I mean, if, if it had an agenda, which yeah. you could argue it did, you can make that argument. Um, but if it didn't, because he, he followed that up with a film called Intolerance, which basically wrecked his career. And mm. that whole, that film is another three, almost four hour epic spanning across multiple storylines, across multiple historical points about how Things such as greed or betrayal or ignorance kind of like dissolves these characters or their moral fabric. It dissolves their moral fabric. And according to the history books, it, it was said that he made that Griffith, that Griffith made that film as sort of like an olive branch to okay. the critics who said that he was racist and pro KKK and. 
et cetera, et cetera. And the expenditure on that film, it killed his career because it killed his his ability to be able to work in the studio. Yeah. Almost bankrupt the studio. I feel once you become polarizing, that's when it's like, okay, like your career really doesn't have anywhere else to go. It's like either you keep catering to an audience or that's it. Well, and then you have, then you have people that are polarizing, but they're still able to work within a certain uh, frame that they have already established because yeah, they keep going yeah. down that path. Then they were able to establish that path. You know, Lars von Trier is one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. You know, his films are wickedly polarizing. You either love him or hate him. And I fucking hate to say it, but like you know, Nicholas Refn, he's another one that does that. Yep. You know, you either love or hate his films. I particularly care less for him. Um, another one, I think, I think the King pro- provocateur, especially in American cinema, for me has been Oliver Stone. Mm-hmm. You know heavily liberal bias in a good many of his films but the the frame set that he has created for himself especially his films in the 80s and early mid 90s you love him or hate him but at the same time like he was able to work within that frame set to where he can make it it was it was a it was a vision it was his own sort of vision oh yeah working within that you know the i mean the best thing you can say is like he didn't compromise himself in that regard, I guess. To a point, to a point, like, and still, like, his films, for instance, like, that, they would be ballsy for a studio to make now. Yep. To make JFK or Nash Born Killers or Platoon. Or I love Nash Born Killers. Fucking love Nash Born Killers. <laughs> Born Killers is one of my favorite movies. Dude, yeah. One of my favorite movies. Once again, another quotable movie. Also, once again, another tumultuous production. Cause, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> well, I mean, just from the whole standpoint that it, it was from a Tarantino script and that was supposed to be part three essentially to the trilogy which made up True Romance, Reservoir Dogs and that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's in the um, it's in the uh, special features too where Oliver Stone's talking about you know, getting the script from Tarantino and, you know, it's just going to be a fun kind of action movie kind of thing. He, he was quoted and he's like, wanted to make a movie that Schwarzenegger would be proud of. Okay. You know, just hey, fun yeah, shoot yeah. him up like tongue in cheek. Oh, yeah. Thing. Oh, yeah. And then he got embroiled in like the sociopolitics, like the, not the sociopolitics, but the way that uh, American culture was revolving around like the paparazzi image and the, uh, uh, daytime TV kind of thing. And oh, yeah. The whole thing with the OJ trial was going Yeah, on. I mean, yeah, it was a big thing back and then. And his brothers and all oh, that yeah. shit. Which is all kind of uh, hacked together in a montage at the end where they show courtroom footage of those things in Waco and uh, numerous other things and parodying um, consumer culture with, like, the fake Coca-Cola ads in the middle of the movie and... Uh, kind of parodying the family sitcom you know having the laugh track o- yeah over the laugh track and the, the clap track and the the credits over when mallory's being molested by fucking right <laughs> yeah yeah well everyone well, what was it we love mallory i think that was the name of the fake tv show that they uh-huh. put under. Like, yeah, 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 brilliant. yeah yeah absolutely brilliant absolutely brilliant and the thing is, is 
about the way he worked with that material, Tarantino didn't want to have anything to do with it. Which is why, if you look at the credits, he and the story goes that Tarantino had a fight to get his name taken away from the screenplay credit and given a story credit because he didn't want anything that he didn't he didn't want his name to be attached to that screenplay. Huh. He totally had that bend to it that he didn't want any part of. He was just trying to write kind of like a lovers on the run, Badlands, uh, kind of. Kind yeah, of film. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, essentially true romance, but kicked up a notch with the violence. And then Oliver Stone took it and put the bend on it and made it what it is, which is a fucking the worst mushroom trip you could possibly have, right? Or the best, depending on what your mind. The best is. worst mushroom trip you can have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he he was he was always able to, for the most part, be able to put his work within that mindset and make it work for him. You know, obviously Wall Street's another one where, you know, he's, sh- he's showing the, the moral rot that one gets into if they want to give up their soul and win the world. You know, in, 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 my, in admiration of, Gordon, of the Gordon Gecko character who has never had a soul to begin with. Yeah. So he was perfect for that job. You know, he's perfect for that role. And Michael Douglas was damn near perfect for that role as well like that's by and far his best role always will be in my opinion and in many people's opinion for good reason because he absolutely nailed it nailed it that just disgusting just capitalism at its finest like (laughs) yeah fucking sal (laughs) you know another one that comes to mind is uh, Billy Wilder And, and as far as a Writer director, he's one of the best. Uh, probably a better writer than he was a director, and he was a hell of a director. He also had a sort of a certain vision of the social norms for the day, and you know, Sabrina, Sunset Boulevard, The Apartment, Stalag Seventeen, which is another bit that's one of my favorite movies. That also has another bit from William Holden, where. It's set in a POW camp, and William Holden's character is someone who they think in the barracks is a, sp- a German spy because he's cozied up to the commandant and a lot of the sergeants and whatnot and has been able to basically uh, run sort of like a gaming operation of sorts. Like okay. He has like horse yeah. races, which it's mice. And people got in the soldiers bet on it, and he's got a bar that he, they brew their own shit, and you know they buy you know two big cocktails and stuff yep. like that. It's just shot yep. up like p- potato skins and water, but and one of the best ones was um they um for half a bar of chocolate or a pound of coffee. This, this is the voiceover in the movie. He set up a telescope that could see kind of to the washroom barracks of the Russian women prisoners which is across the camp so you, like there's a whole line of guys like outside of this barracks all waiting to get in and the one guy he just gives it's like a 20 seconds for a cigarette and the guy just keeps popping out cigarettes <laughs> looking into it but the best the best the best the best for me is in the beginning of the film uh two guys, Manfredi and Johnson, they're planning to escape. And they got this whole 
route set up. Uh, they're going to go here, take a canoe here, take a fishing trough here, and then they're going to be across this line, get across the Alps, you know, at, here's money, here's clothing, et cetera, et cetera. And they had this whole tunnel dug underneath the barracks out to the water tower. And then they're, they're going to go through, or no, excuse me, under the barracks out to a field, and then they're going to cross through. And William Holmes steps up. He's like two packs of cigarettes. They don't get out of the. They don't get out of the forest. And he starts taking c- bets on cigarettes, and everyone starts throwing in. Well, it ends up these two guys get gunned down. And he's collecting all these cigarettes, and it kind of builds on that. And then the next thing, um, they have a they have a stove that the commandant's gonna have taken away because it guard it blocks the uh, entrance to the tunnel. And after this whole meeting out in the out in the main yard with all the uh, POWs and the commandant played by Otto Preminger, uh, they're all gathered around for for lunch, and it's um, potato soup. And guys oh, lapping it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, two yeah, of the yeah. guys cooking uh, or uh, uh, Harry Shapiro and, and Animal, they get back, and they find the uh, the the chef. "Quote unquote," like washing his socks, and the rest and the rest of the potato <laughs> yeah, soup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then William Holm <laughs> Holm comes through with an egg, a small egg, and cracks it. He's flipping the egg and whatnot. And he's eating the egg and drinking lukewarm coffee in front of everyone. And there's this whole bit. Uh, this guy Duke, he's like the scruffy, angry, pissed off character. Uh, he he attacks William Holden because he. Uh, he thinks he's he tipped off the Germans to get those two guys killed, and he's like William Holden's like walking around the barracks, and everyone's kind of seated or standing around like staring at him, and he's like, "What what do you think you guys are trying to prove anyways? Cutting trap doors, digging tunnels?" He's like, "You listen," to, and he said, "You listen to me," and. He's he's confronting uh, he's confronting the other guys in the barracks and then what hello oh it's this guy this guy again hold it Seymour what are you doing let me sit down in your chair all right how did he find my house. Uh, he, he logged on the fan page and it's all on there. All right, Seymour, I'll, I'll give you my chair. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Oh, I got a high rise here. I like it. Pancake House 2019. Mm. Oh, oh, what? Hey, Nate, is that, is that you? It's, it's me. Hey, oh. no, I was, I, I was next door and I heard you guys talking about the movies and I wanted to, can, can I, this is cool. Is, is this all right? It is what the young cats say is hip. Yeah, no, it's fine, Seymour. No, you're good, buddy. You need anything? Huh? Do you need anything? No, no, I'm good. No, what is this? What is this on my foot? Oh! Oh! The classic. Oh. Paps Blue Ribbon. Having some of us a uh, daddy's cough syrup, huh? Nah. Someone, someone called it that. All right, all right. I just want to pop over and tell you the story. I'll get out of your hair. All right, you're talking about Billy Holden, right? Yes, we were. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about William Holden. Oh, yeah, I remember him. I remember him. He was a 
Oh, he was a charming young man at one point, especially before the war. And then he he got too big. He got too big for his britches. He got too big, and then Hollywood had to bring him down. It reminds me, it, yeah, Charlton Heston. Sounds to me he just needed another pair of pants. Wait, talking about Charlton Heston. I was gonna say I was on the lot in MGM in '58 when they're doing Ben Hur. It was me and Billy Holden and Charlton Heston, and we went out for a night of the hoos. We went out for the night of the hoos, and then we yeah. No, calm down, calm down, Seymour. Calm down. Trying yeah. to understand your dialect. Yeah. Just calm down, buddy. I know you're excited. I know you want to tell us all about it. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. One day, in about April 58, I've been long gone since Okinawa. I've been pressed past in my memory. I was on the lot at MGM. I worked as an as a extra hand. I was a grip. I was, uh, I soldered uh, stuff together to make the cameras go back and forth. What do they call those? Trek? Yeah. Yeah. I bet on those. I went there too. So I was on the lot at MGM with Charlie Heston and Billy Holden. And I tell you what, it was the most grand month of my life. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Too bad I can't remember what exactly happened. Oh, Seymour, that's not real. Oh, were you there? Who are you going to believe? Me? You better. I'm the only one telling you this. So I was there, and that's really, yeah, that's it. Yeah, we had a great time. I think we had a great time. Did we have a great time? Why are you asking me? I mean, hey, the less you remember, the thing, the better the time you have. What? (laughs) MGM, the back lot. Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. There's so many things I want to tell you, but you you told me already this is a family-friendly uh, broadcast, so I got to keep it down. I can tell you all the wall stories I can, but some of that stuff on the MGM back lot, that's safe with the back pages and yellow letters. So just remember that. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. All right. Oh, I just want to tell you, I just want to tell you, I had one great month with Charlie Heston and Billy Holden, and now, I, that, that was really it, that was really it, I mean, that whole thing about Marilyn, uh, I was there for it, I, I watched it, I didn't really, I didn't take part, I wanted to, she said no, she already had enough on her hands, that, alright, Seymour, I, okay. and knees, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes, Oh. Something or something or something about Japanese and dirty knees and whatever whatever she was spout whatever voodoo she was spouting. I don't know. I don't know. That was. Uh, I I had to go. I had to go back and talk to my rabbi about about what happened. It was like confessional, but Jewish. And I'm not even. I wasn't even Jewish when it happened. I gave that shit up before the war. Wait, they? Huh. All right. All right, you crazy kids. I've talked your ear off long enough. Thank you for having me. Thank you, uh, listeners. Seymour Hirschfelder at 93rd and 5th in Old Brooklyn. Come see me. Shabbat. Bye. See you later, Seymour. All right, I'm going to take my seat back from that crazy fucker. Is he just sitting in your lap the entire time? 
No, well, he uh, he wanted to. He was going for it, and then I had to scoot out of the way. Fair enough. Uh, I would I would have done the same thing in your situation. Yeah, I, he he is a very nice man, though. I, I do appreciate. I, I do adore his. his presence after he's gotten the stench away. Well, <laughs> that is the hardest part. <laughs> he does tend to pee on himself on purpose. Uh, don't we all? Oh, jeez. All right. <laughs> what else, what else? Movie stuff. We're 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 leaking this drain. What what else you got for me, Nate? You're over there with your fucking uh, yellow legal pad. So hit me with your best shot. Ah, uh, okay. So what would be your favorite '70s non-western western? I'm glad you asked that, Nate. For my recommendation, I would go with Robert Altman's 1973 *The Long Goodbye*, starring Elliot Gould as Philip Marlowe in a genre revisionist style of the hard-boiled detective novel. All right, all right. I would say so because it is a character set against his backdrop in Southern California, played as though he is a stranger in a strange land, which I think most great Westerns do. So as far as a 70s non-Western Western, I would go with 1973's The Long Goodbye from Robert Ullman. Okay. Hmm. Alright, um, we're going for more questions. Favorite modern noir? Modern noir? Oh. That, that is a good question. Follow up question. Uh, what do you mean? What, what would you quantify as modern? Time span? Time. Like, A- anywhere from the mid 90s to now. Mid 90s? Fuck. Uh. I mean, there's, I mean, a lot of room for that, I, th- I feel. Seven usual suspects. He quantifies more. Honestly, I, I would, <clears throat> I would quantify it as noir because it has very many of the traditional tropes, like, you know, uh, very strong colors. Strong female lead, you know, shady counterparts, things happening behind closed doors kind of vibe. The Black Book. Okay. 2006, Paul Verhoeven, it was in his native native language, it's Dutch. It's about a woman who, a Jewish woman who goes undercover with the Nazis to try to help stave off I think it's stave off the execution of her of her uh, village and her town and community and what ends up what ends up happening is that she gets so involved with a certain Nazi that her people uh, think that she's flipped and at once the Germans flip on her and her family and community flip on her and she gets completely ostracized and basically has to settle for what she has accomplished it's it's a whirlwind of a movie I think it's like 2.15 2 hours 15 minutes okay and it it comes at you it's it's kind of exhausting I was kind of exhausted exhausted after seeing it but it has a lot of that thrill and intrigue and 
very uh, if Hitchcock did a World War, World War II movie in a 80's flair okay yeah yeah I would, I would give that that Nocturnal yeah. Animals I will say as far as recent movies that I've seen that I would qualify as noir I think that could qualify um I didn't mind it. I think it should have stuck with the basic, well, once again with Verhoeven, the basic instinct sort of Brian De Palma vibe that it had going for it at the beginning. And then it became melodrama, and that's where it kind of sunk. But it stays afloat because it stays interesting. Interesting enough, and some of the shot choices are very good and very aligned. and So I, I, would, I would say those. Fair enough. Come to mind. Yeah, that sounds good. All right. What else? Those two. Everything oh. was better than three. So let's round it out, Nate. Uh, you have any questions for me? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here. Uh, do do you like right, favorite favorite favorite? Uh, I don't even know what fucking movies you like. To be honest. <laughs> I, I like a lot of the same kind of movies you do. Maybe I don't know more in the fanatical worst, sense. Worst male lead, either character or actor for. Worst best, uh, Ryan Reynolds. In worst Green Lantern. Best, I don't know. Deadpool. Deadpool's good. I mean him and Deadpool. Yeah. Ah, shit. I still remember Ryan Reynolds when he was on Two Guys, a Girl, and a Pizza Place. I remember that. Okay, how about this? How about this? Uh, fucking uh, Robert Pattinson. Worst in Twilight, best in Good Time. Okay, I've heard, I've heard. You know what? He's, uh, I gotta give it to that guy. I I honestly have not seen any of the movies he's ever been in. But from the choices I've seen him make. Oh, dude, he was fucking excellent in Good Time, man. Like, that that was one of my favorite movies of the year. Yeah, he seems like one of those cats. Like, I'm glad he broke out of the whole Twilight thing and he's, like, trying to make interesting movies. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like, honestly, that was a good strategy to get, like, himself in the spotlight and it's like, oh, hey, yeah, I can also do all this other shit. Yeah. That's good on him. Good on him. Yeah. So. Uh, one more. Mm. Here, I got one. I got one. I got one. Okay. Favorite uh, Western lead. Favorite lead in the Western that was not Clint Eastwood or John Wayne. Mm. I like 310 to a Yuma a lot. So I had to say. Which one? uh, The new one? I, I didn't mind that one. Have you seen the original? I can't say I have, honestly. Trust me, the original's better. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was good. It's damn good. I mean, for what the new one was, I thought it was very entertaining. So. I don't know. It, <laughs> I played the fifth. All right. I think we've drained that sieve. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's get out of here. Let's pare this down. Put a tune at the end. Hope you folks had a good time. Uh, we'll be 
rambling about movies uh, soon enough. We're going to take next week off. We've got a little tinkering to do with the equipment and all the goodies that we have in store. So, once again, uh, Moon Tower 2018 on Instagram, European on Twitter, mm-hmm. European on SoundCloud. We have the Facebook page, Moon Tower Podcast, same as on the Apple Podcast list. Just give us a search. Tell us what you think. We're on there. So, folks, until next time, thank you for tuning in. Over and out. Peace out, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. Good night and good luck.